Matt did a wonderful job of uh, giving you the background on us. And as you can hear, I sound like Froggy from the Little Rascals this morning. Uh, those of you who know the Little Rascals know who I'm talking about. Those of you who don't, sorry about that. It's a cultural, uh, cultural thing you're not aware of, but you should be. It's pretty, pretty good stuff. Um, Matt was correct. Ruth is, is, a, is a wonderful, wonderful book in the Bible. It's a wonderful story. It's short, it's clear, it's concise. There's a lot of things that are said, a lot of things that aren't said. Chapter 3 is one of those chapters that has a lot of stuff in it. So we're going to try to move rather quickly because I want to get through all of it. Um, where we left off... I have to get my cheaters out. Give me a minute here. Sorry about that. Doctor said, uh, you know you're getting to be that age. I said, thanks for that, Doc. I appreciate that. But we left off last week. Matt did a good job of, of setting us up for where we are today. Where in this... I guess I'm going this way, right? This is all about Redeemer love. And who the Redeemer is. What is the role of the Redeemer? What, what, what does it mean to be Redeemer? And in this chapter, uh, we'll get a lot of good information on this Redeemer, this idea of redeeming. And today we're going to find some rest under his wings. It's, it's a phrase that's used in Scripture quite frequently. You'll see it. I'll see it. We'll, we'll share it together. I'm not used to this, so you give me a minute. We'll see how this goes. Last week, we left off with Ruth, stayed close to Boaz, his female servants, and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, I did some research. I did some looking. And it's about 49 days between the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. And you've also got to let the things dry out, which takes 7 to 10 days. And... We keep going with this time frame. So it's just not like the next day or the next week, right? Every day, out in the fields, gleaning the fields. Every day, out in the field, gleaning the fields, preparing the fields, getting everything ready. So we're still harvesting now. And then we start with Ruth chapter 3, with Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, says to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, this idea of rest, this idea of rest is really important because this idea of rest, where they are in Bethlehem, in the promised land, this is not new, finding rest. This is not something that's, comf that, that's a, a brand new concept. This, this finding rest is in Scripture. Uh, you look through Judges, which is the previous book, before here, you find the judges come, they judge, and then they, the land has rest. Right? But even in this chapter, even in this book, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 9, you get, May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and wept loudly. This is Naomi talking to her daughter-in-laws saying, go on, go find rest over there with some other guy. Go find a husband. There you'll find rest. But, but that's not where we should find rest. That's not where we should be looking for rest. And Naomi's trying to find rest for Ruth now here in chapter 3. In Exodus, this is God speaking to the Israelites. And he says, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. I think that's important. I think it's important to know and to understand that this is all written down. This isn't something that they haven't been exposed to, the children of Israel. It's something that Naomi should know, that God has said. These are the books of Moses that should have been there for her. And from a child raised up, seeing that God gives rest, we also see it in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 12.9, again, Indeed, you have not yet come into the resting place, 
and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land your Lord God is giving you to inherit. And he gives you rest from all the enemies around you. And you live in security. Then the Lord your God will choose the place to have his name dwell. Bring there everything I command you. Your burnt offerings, sacrifices, offerings of the tenth, personal contributions. And all your choice offerings you vow to the Lord. This is Moses talking to the Israelites. God is giving you rest. The Lord is giving you rest in the land that he is giving to you. It doesn't stop there. Joseph, uh, Joshua, I mean. Joshua is told, remember what Moses, the Lord's servant, commanded you when he said, the Lord your God will give you rest. And he will give you this land. See, rest is not something that should be unfamiliar at this point in time. Here we have these passages of scripture where we know and we see that God is the one who's granting rest. And then we can go forward. And we can see in Kings, blessed be the Lord. He has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all he has said. Not not one of all the good promises he made through his servant Moses has failed. This is rest being based upon a promise that God has made. This is rest being based upon fulfilled promises that God has made and come followed through with. See, we can look at this passage of Scripture and we can say, yes, God fulfills his promises and we can have rest. We can have rest knowing that God is faithful because God demonstrates his faithfulness. And in Matthew, Jesus says to take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest. For your souls. This is, this is again nothing, nothing contradictory. It's not Jesus saying, you find rest in me, this guy. No, this is, this is the divine son incarnate in his earthly ministry doing the exact same thing, making a promise that only God can fulfill and give, and that is rest for you. So we should be very suspicious then when we hear someone saying, isn't it my role to find rest for you? When we see Naomi talking to Ruth and saying, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? We should be very suspicious of that. Not necessarily thinking that it's wrong of her to want what's good for her daughter. It's not wrong for us to want to find rest for our friends, family, neighbors. But where are we seeking that rest? Are we seeking that rest in someone else? In a husband? In a lifestyle? Or are we seeking that rest in the Lord? See, Naomi is looking to Boaz. Isn't Boaz... Our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Oh boy. The threshing floor. So, we'll get to the threshing floor. Give me just a moment here. This relative redeemer, this goes back to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there's five, six verses. Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting in verse 5. And this talks about this leveret marriage idea, this idea of a relative redeemer. And it says, When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, 
have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out. From Israel. But if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, my brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of this city, of his city, will summon him and speak with him. If he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. Then she will declare, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. And his family name in Israel will be the house of the man whose sandal was removed. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Now, I, I, I believe that this is going to be an interesting compare and contrast for when you get into chapter 4. But let's just look at this, Deuteronomy 25, right? The whole idea is to preserve the family name and property. And guess what? This is not a new idea. Deuteronomy is not the first place where you come up with this idea of, of a family maintaining the family heritage, the family name for a deceased husband. Okay? This is not new. But this is where it is written out. This is where it is codified and established as written law. So the brother of the dead performs the husbandly duties in order for that line to continue. And he doesn't get any recognition for it. That The child isn't his. The child doesn't retain his name. The child doesn't retain his property. It's not that way. This is the way in which the family for the deceased continues on. Now, I say that this is interesting because the sister-in-law is the one who's proactive in doing this. The sister-in-law is the one who goes up to the Redeemer. The sister-in-law is the one who says, you've got a responsibility to do. The sister-in-law is the one who responds if that brother-in-law doesn't follow through by spitting on him and slapping him in the face with his shoe. at the city gates, in front of the leaders. I don't know about you, but I would not want to be the guy standing at the city gates, being spit on, slapped with my own shoe by this irate woman who's only trying to preserve her husband, her deceased husband's family name. That would be quite an embarrassment. And then to be known... As the house of the man whose sandal was removed. But this is not a new thing. Not at all. Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38 is quite an interesting chapter because it deals with Judah. Now Judah, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I would encourage you to read it. That's your homework. I used to be a teacher, and so I like giving homework. So your homework for tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is to go and read Genesis chapter 38. But I will give you an overview of what this is all about. So Jacob had sons. Among them was Judah. And he and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery, and about the time when um, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, Judah leaves his brothers and settles near an Adolamite named Hira. Okay? Finds a wife named Shua. Gets married, has children. He has a boy named Er. He has a second son named Onan, and he has a third son named Shelah, okay? 
Then Judah gets a wife for his oldest son, Er, named Tamar. But guess what? Er was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. And so what does Judah say? Judah says to Onan, you have a responsibility to your brother to carry on his family line. You need to take Tamar as your wife and have children for your brother. This is in Genesis before Deuteronomy. The idea of carrying on the family redeemer is not a new thing in Ruth. It's not a new thing in Deuteronomy. But guess what Onan does? Onan says, sure, Dad. I'm all right. I'm on that. But he doesn't. He doesn't follow through with his responsibility. And so guess what? The Lord puts him to death too. And so then Judah says, well, all right. You just wait now, Tamar. Go back to your father's home and wait until my third son gets old enough and I'll give you him in marriage and he can have children for you. Okay? He'll, he'll take care of it, right? Well, the literal, and there were many days. It doesn't sound like Judah followed through either. There were many days. And then Shua died, Judah's wife. She died. And then when he finished mourning for her, for her wife, they all went up to shear sheep. And Tamar found out that Judah left to go and shear sheep. So Tamar says, hmm, I got an idea. She took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. Judah didn't follow through. Shua wasn't the responsible guy. And so she, now Tamar is taking matters into her own hands. Okay. Judah thought she was a prostitute, and he sleeps with her. And she conceives. He didn't know it was Tamar. And guess where they were? On the threshing floor. I bring this up because this is what Naomi tells Ruth to do. Go to the threshing floor. Naomi tells Ruth to meet Boaz at the threshing floor. And instantly... We should recall this story of Judah and Tamar because this happens on the threshing floor. Well, because Judah didn't know who Tamar was because she was covered, later he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and he's ready to put her to death. But she was savvy. She grabbed, she had Judah give his ring and his cord and his staff, right? And he, she presents them to Judah, and Judah says, oh my goodness, I was so wrong. And so then Tamar, it turns out, had twins. Had twins. And it, the birth was interesting, because one child, the first one, put his hand out. So the midwife ties a cord around that, but the hand goes back in, and then the other one comes out. And that child's name was Perez. It's very important. We'll get to Perez later. Maybe t next week. I don't know. We'll see. So Judah and Tamar, the threshing floor, not a great place. 
And now we're in, back into Ruth. Winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So, wash, put on perfumed oil. This is Ruth being told by Naomi. Naomi speaking, wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor. But don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go, uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth says, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor, did everything her mother-in-law charged her to do. After Boaz ate and drank and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. She came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lie down. Literally. Okay? Now, an aside. I do want to let you know that some people are going to say, and some people have said, that this is a euphemism. Some people have said, you know, when she uncovered her, his feet, I mean, she, like, really meant what the Bible really meant was something else happened. It's more Tamar and Judah than it is Boaz and Ruth. But it doesn't fit, does it? It doesn't fit that Boaz, who is described in chapter 2 as being a mighty man of valor, a noble character, that, that Ruth being described in chapter 2 as being a woman of noble character in all that she does, it doesn't follow that something untoward had happened. Especially when we go into the next verse. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet. Not lying next to him. Was a woman. So he asked, who are you? It doesn't follow that something untoward, something scandalous had happened because it doesn't fit with the characters. It doesn't fit with the story that had been presented so far up until here. I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. And this is a wonderful phrase. The, Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Take me under your wing. See, we're looking for rest under his wings. All of us are looking for some kind of rest. Where are we looking for that? Everybody, you go out into society and you see where people are trying to find comfort and rest. They're trying to find a way in which they're not burdened, hassled, overcome with the struggles, the strains, the stresses. They're looking for rest. Now, I see Ruth asking this question to Boaz as Stay in line with the role of a redeemer for the family. Obey what God's word says. See? In um, Ruth 1.16, Ruth replies, Don't plead with me to abandon you or or to return or not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. 
This is the commitment that Ruth had already made prior to leaving Moab, prior to arriving in Bethlehem, prior to getting into the promised land. Ruth had made a commitment to God, to follow God. And does that mean that she would abandon that promise of obedience, abandon that fulfillment? One of the interesting notes that I, I see in commentators who look at chapter 1 is that even Ruth knows this whole promise of may the Lord do unto me what I deserve if I don't fulfill my obligation. This, this whole idea of this covenant made with God that she makes here. Now, would she throw this away just for a man? It doesn't fit. See, the psalmist writes in Psalm 17, 8, Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wing. I don't know how many farmers there are here. I don't know how many people have chickens. Um, we've had chickens. We miss having chickens. Uh, my great uncle, actually, he was a... Uh, breeder, and he raised exotic birds and some really interesting things, just weird things. And in spring, watching these birds care for, nurture, and love on their hatchlings is exactly like this idea of being under their wings. I've even seen birds that will walk around, mother hens walk around with their wings like this, with this little band of chicks chirping away underneath them as she walks real slowly, moving them along. And they are completely oblivious to everything else that's outside of that protection. Psalm 36, 7, how priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So we've got protection, we've got love, and we've got that all associated under this umbrella of being hidden in his wings. Be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me, for I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. Grace, love, protection. I will dwell in your tent forever and take refuge under the shelter of your wings. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. The imagery that we're seeing as God loves, protects, shields, is faithful to us, under his wings. So Boaz then, finding out that it was Ruth there, says, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So two times in this, he calls her daughter. And then reinforces her noble character, the kind of person that she is. 
Now we can talk a lot about how was this the kind of woman that Ruth was before she married into the house of Elimelech? We don't know. We don't have that information. But we do know that in Moab there was idolatry. We do know that in Moab it was not one of the greatest family lines to be a part of. Looking at it as an Israelite, right? The town, all the people in town know of her noble character. All the people. She is looking and seeking for protection in obedience to God's word. You don't have this kind of relationship between Boaz and Ruth if something scandalous has occurred. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. I like that one. Noble character. Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. See, it was very well understood and recognized that Ruth was this woman of noble character. And this just doesn't happen on her own. See, when, I'm, when I read Ruth, I see this being a result of going right back into chapter 1, where she makes a commitment to Naomi and says, look, I'm not abandoning you, I'm not leaving you, and I'm not leaving you because God is God. Because Yahweh is the Lord Almighty. And this has changed her because God changes people. And so we found out in Ruth chapter 2 that Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. So here we have both of these individuals established early on in this story as being noble characters. Of being upstanding people. And so Boaz continues speaking. He says, yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer. But there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz says, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz says, you're right, I am a redeemer. But I can't redeem you because there's someone else who can redeem you. There's someone else who's closer relative than I am. And I'm not going to jump over the process. Again, we see here how Boaz's character takes precedence 
how Boaz's obedience takes precedence. He says, I can't, I can't, I gotta wait. We gotta take care of this the right way. We've gotta do the right thing here. And don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Again, with the threshing floor. Could you imagine what people are saying? Oh, did you know that Ruth and Boaz? They were on the threshing floor. You know what that threshing floor is all about? I remember that threshing floor. What was she doing there? Even if nothing happened. See, 2 Corinthians tells us, indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. We can't live our lives thinking that just because others are wrong in what they assume we've done, that that's okay. You know, I, you know what? God, God knows, and I know what really happened. That's enough. No. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evil doers, they will observe, observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So it's important. It's important to be a good witness for what God does, to be upstanding. To not give any opportunity for slander. And this is great. He told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl. And she went into town. He doesn't send her away with nothing. Again, time and time again, we see Boaz sending her off with more than she expects. Do you think Ruth expected to go home with six measures of barley? She had no idea. I don't think she had any idea what was going to happen on the threshing floor. And this is a great opportunity for a less noble character to really take advantage of a young woman. But we don't see that either. As a matter of fact, a noble person plans noble things. He stands up for noble causes. Where do we get our nobility? Where do we get our nobility? Do I get it from things I do? Or do I get it because my life is changed and my identity is no longer in myself? See, we're told that we are heirs to a kingdom when we're in Christ. And so when our identity is in Christ, we are changed. And when we're changed, this is when our character our personal character, our real person, who we really are, is not what we show people. We show the people the character of Christ. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, What happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, He gave me these six measures of barley because he said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now, this is the woman who returns to Bethlehem and says that I have nothing, I'm empty, I have nothing. And time and time and time again, Ruth returns to her full. 
of stuff. Food, grain. Time and time again, Ruth returns back. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. We got a great day ahead of us, don't we? This, this day is going to be quite an interesting day. Because if, you're, if you've been watching the Lifetime movie of Ruth and Boaz over the past few weeks, you know, we're at the point now where the, where the main characters have actually come together and that, that tension, that romantic tension is there and, oh, no, we can't get together because there's someone else. Oh, I don't know what to do, right? So this is, this is where we're at. We're getting ready to get to the climax. But I want you to think about this. Okay? We read Deuteronomy 25. Boaz told Ruth that there is a relative closer than I am. Boaz says, I I'm going to take care of this. He doesn't say, well, you know, you should actually go to him. And if he doesn't want to redeem you, spit on him and smack him with his shoe. And make sure you do that in front of everybody at the city gates because, you know, you're a, you're a Moabite, and that's, that's appropriate. Mm, no. No. What we're seeing in this in exchange is a lot of noble characters being displayed. We see a lot of Boaz saying, you be patient. Go home. Take this to your mother-in-law. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk to him. I'm going to talk to him so nobody gets embarrassed. I'm going to talk to him to protect you. See, I don't know that, that Ruth is expecting what ends up happening. I don't know if she knows what to expect at this point. Things have been kind of strange already. We could argue that months have gone by since she started gleaning, that there's been a lot of oh, living with Naomi that has been kind of trying. You know, a woman who's lost everything. I, I, I wouldn't put it past Ruth to think, man, this is hopeless. There's some other guy. I don't even know him. I don't even know what kind of guy this guy is. It, it, it could be very easy to fret, to be concerned, to be worried, to be stressed out to not know what to do. It would be very easy to run around talking. What do you think is going to happen? Break down, cry. I mean, all these different options are available. But rest. I think what Naomi says to her is good for Ruth. She says, wait. She says, wait until you find out how things go. Just, just wait. Be patient. Boaz is going to go and take care of this. Boaz is not going to rest until this matter is resolved.
I don't think that that there's this concept, this idea of putting your faith in someone here, though. Because Ruth has already committed to God. She has already committed that she is going to trust in the Lord. She is already going to say, look, I'm leaving everything behind. I'm sticking to you. I'm committing to this course of action. God, your God is my God. At any point in time, at any point in time, between her arrival to Bethlehem and this moment, at any point in time, Ruth could have said, forget this. I, I've had enough of this nonsense, gleaning in the field, putting up with Naomi, all those women talking about me. I've, I'm done, I'm out, I'm going back to home. At any point in time, she could have done that. At any point in time, she could have said, this isn't for me. I don't, I don't see any point or purpose in being here or staying here. There's nothing for me here. There's no children. There's no husband. There's no prospects. At any point in time, she could have said, I'm done, and left. But she doesn't. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. So the psalmist is telling us to wait. The psalmist is saying, be patient. The psalmist is saying, God's got this. God has a point, God has a plan, God has a purpose. Committing to God sometimes can seem hard. Sometimes it can seem difficult. Sometimes it can seem like, I don't even know where this is going. I don't see anything in front of me. Sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it's a roller coaster. But the psalmist says, trust in the Lord and do what is good. Persevere, continue on. This is what we see in Ruth, continuing to do what is good. This is what we see in Boaz, continuing to do what is good. Trusting in the Lord. See, when, when we commit to God. The reason that the psalmist says that he will give us our heart's desires is because he changes our heart. He changes our heart. We no longer want what we want. We want what delights the Lord. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. This, this is what Ruth has to do now. Be silent and wait. And sometimes that's the advice that we need. 
at times in our lives to be silent and wait, to be patient, to not be agitated because of all this other stuff that's going on. We see the wicked prospering and we see people plotting evil plans. We see all these things around us. Psalmist says, don't do that. Don't worry about that. Be patient. Wait. And I love this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn. Your justice like the noonday. Again. When our hearts have changed, when our desires have changed, when we are under his wing, is it really our righteousness? Is it really our justice that gets demonstrated? When we're covered by the wing of our Lord, people see him and not us. 